why don't you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark right now, and we're going to jump into this. Gospel of Mark is where we're at. Um, we're in chapter 12, and uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to basically read the passage that we're going to be studying, and then, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work on this, and begin to take a look at some of the things that Mark wants us to learn about Jesus. In short, uh, Jesus is in basically the last week of his life. Up until this point, uh, he's been a preacher that's gone around for the past two and a half, three years or so, preaching in these little different villages. Um, but this is really the first time or the major time in Jesus' life that he's actually gone to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a very large city in this time. It was actually the center for everything religious, economic, social, uh, everything that basically had to do with uh, government and laws and religion. Literally everything came out of Jerusalem. Up until this time, like I said, Jesus did most of his ministry in these little small villages. And uh, so Jesus can be out in these villages talking to people, influencing people, so on and so forth. Um, and there wasn't too much of a threat. I mean, as long as Jesus stayed on the outskirts, he wasn't a huge threat to the big power brokers in Jerusalem. Now Jesus goes into their hood, all right? Jesus is going into their territory. He's going into their living room, and he's like, what's up? What are you guys doing? You're messing things up. And he's already done something in terms of a very aggressive uh, attack upon them. He's gone into their power center, the temple. He's overthrown the tables. He's overthrown the money changers. That was his basic way of saying, I hate what you're doing. All right, I totally disapprove of what's happening here. This is horrible. Uh, I, I, this is not two thumbs up. This is like incurring my wrath and my judgment. He's not winning friends very quickly here, all right? In fact, what's happening is Jesus is now put himself or poised himself, positioned himself in the spot where now everybody that has some form of power wants to see Jesus killed. They realize their only hope of succession, their only hope of keeping and sustaining their baselines or foundations of power is somebody's got to go. Either the temple goes or Jesus goes. And for you know, many, many religious people, the temple was, their, it was what fed them. It was what kept them in power. It was what kept them in control. And so for them, they thought, there's no way the temple's going to go. Jesus must go. And so they were conspiring and figuring out ways in which they were going to kill Jesus. So that brings us to the passage that we'll be taking a look at here today. It's sort of the last of several um, confrontations that have been poised against Jesus of Jesus' enemies. And this particular one is a guy who is identified as a scribe. We'll look at him more in just a second. But I'm going to read the passage, begin about verse 28 in chapter 12, read down to about verse 34. You can follow along, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. And one of the scribes came up, and they heard him disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe then said to him, you are right. Teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, much more than all of these, uh, much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. God, what we need here this morning is we need revelation. We need your spirit. We need your power. We need your work upon our hearts. 
God, otherwise all we simply have is just information going into our hearts and information doesn't change us. Information might make us more arrogant. Information may cause us to think we're smarter. Information may give us more fuel and ammunition to despise and to hate on those who have less wisdom, less knowledge than we perceive we have. But knowledge doesn't change us. Transformation in hearts changes us. We need our eyes opened. And we ask you right now, God, that you'd help open our eyes. Help us to see what Jesus has to speak to us about this unbelievable principle of love. So give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see everything that the Spirit desires to speak to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject that Jesus deals with today is the issue of love. Now, he's approached by this particular guy. He's described. I want to kind of preface this off by really basically saying, kind of establishing the context here of what's happening. Uh, the scribe, he's a religious leader. Oftentimes, I think when we read our Bibles, we can sort of collapse all of the religious people together as one. You know, we're like, oh, scribes, Pharisees, you know, hypocrites, you know, uh, Sadducees. We're like, oh, they're all part of the same tribe. They're all like friends with each other, buddies, hang out, right? Uh, it's like manager and CEO and CFO of the same corporation, right? No, totally wrong, all right? It's like someone dropping in from a foreign country into, into our country and watching the television, and they're like, oh, like, Republicans, Democrats, oh, they're like all buddies. They're like, no, they actually hate each other. They don't like each other. That's why one's red, one's blue, and they're always fighting, bickering, dealing with trying to, you know, get an up on the other. No, they don't like each other. The only time they ever come together is if they have a common enemy, and this is the same way as it is in Jesus' day. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of these people were basically, for the most part, uh, they may have had some form of respect for each other, but really at the end of the day, they did not like each other. They didn't like each other's stances, positions, theologically, politically, sociologically, so on and so forth. But what we see here is they all had a common enemy, Jesus. They all disliked Jesus. They all saw Jesus as a threat to their securing power and authority for a long time. And so they all desired find out ways to conspire to kill Jesus, to put him to death, or at least to get rid of him. All right, and so what we see here, finally, is this guy who's a scribe. Now, scribes basically, for the most part, these guys had a job or a task, and their job was to basically transcribe or write out uh, all sorts of documents. I mean, back in the day, obviously, they didn't have photocopiers or printers or whatnot, and so they had somebody that was hired, he was called a scribe, and he would write things out. It could have been an important court document, it could have been a poem, it uh, could have been your book, you know, that you published. Like, I need this published. I need like 100,000 copies of it, right? I mean, unrealistic. You're like, I need 10 copies of it. So you hire scribes. The scribes would write these things out. They would also have religious scribes. This is probably who this guy was. He was a religious scribe that wrote out the Torah. And this he had an important task. Um, and this guy, because he was very familiar with the Bible, very familiar with the Torah, he's familiar with basically the layout of the Torah. For the most part, what we see in the Torah uh, the first five books of Moses and then also the law and the prophets was that most scribes, most religious leaders identified that there were about 613 commandments that the Jewish people were to follow. Uh, some of them were negative, some of them were uh, positive, some of them were explicit, some of them were implicit, meaning they were just implied. You need to do them, you need to live according to them. So, uh, so out of 613 of these laws, oftentimes they were discussing amongst themselves, sometimes in heated debates, what's the most important one? Like, out of 613, really? Like, we got to, and it's tough to live according to every single one of those. So they were oftentimes trying to refine it. They're trying to figure out, okay, out of all of these, which, is, which are the most important, most significant ones to follow. 
Not as if to say that any of them are lesser than, but which ones really sort of encapsulate the whole. And this is the question that this religious leader comes to Jesus asking. You know, Rabbi, which one is the greatest of all of the commandments? And so what we're going to see this morning basically are four things I want to take a look at with regard to this issue of love. Because Jesus responds by saying, really the issue, the most important commandment is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we'll take a look at, first of all, the foundation of love. Second, we'll take a look at the command of love. Jesus offers a command. Third thing, we'll take a look at the problem of love because love poses some problems. And then finally, we'll take a look at the hope of love. So again, foundation, the command, the problem, and then ultimately going back to the hope. All right? So dealing, first of all, with the foundation of love, in verse 29, what Jesus tells as he basically responds back to this guy, he says, the most important, all right? So in other words, the summary most important of all of the commandments are these. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord, is one, and you shall love. What Jesus does is he doesn't make up something. Jesus actually quotes from Deuteronomy. It's actually Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the name of this particular passage is called, traditionally, the Shema. Um, the word Shema is derived from the very first word there where it says hear. The word hear or listen uh, is actually the Hebrew word Shema. And Jews to this day actually pray this prayer. And it's a prayer that they pray on a regular day. In fact, um, if you've ever been into a Jewish house or someone who might be Jewish or maybe even a Christian who want to be Jewish, um, they have like a little thing up on their doorpost. It's called a mezuzah. And oftentimes, especially when I was in Israel several times, you'd see everybody, they would walk in or out of a house, and they would, you know, kiss that little mezuzah up there. Inside that mezuzah, I finally asked someone one time, I'm like, what, what is that? They're like, oh, inside that is the Shema. It's a little scroll that basically would say, Hero is here, the Lord your God is one. She'll love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And so this sort of encapsulated Israel's responsibility to their loving creator, God. And so what Jesus does is he quotes this. And here's what he's basically saying, is that the foundation of all love originates from God. Uh, here's a way a particular rabbi described this. Now, mind you, this guy's not Jewish, but here's what he says. Or, I'm sorry, he's, he is Jewish, he's not Christian. Here's what he says. He describes it this way. Love comes out of a sense of God's unity. This is expressed in the Shema. The first line declares God's unity and ends with the word one, followed by the commandment to love God. So in other words, what this particular rabbi is saying is that love actually comes out of the fact that God is one. He's a unity. Now we as Christians, we also see within the revelation of God that God is also diverse, not divided, but diverse, meaning we see he is not only father, but also son and spirit. We describe that as Trinity, as Trinitarian. Some might object and say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. That's correct. It's not in the Bible, but the concept is that God has revealed himself, identified himself, uh, sought to unveil himself to us as having character, as being, even though it was one, he identifies, reveals himself within this diversity of Father, Son, and Spirit. And if this is true, which we believe it is, that means that amongst the Godhead, which is another big theological term, that in this relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit is love and unity. That means that there's never any lies, there's never duplicity, never arguments. Jesus is never hiding something from the Father, saying, I got a secret, I'm not going to tell you. The Holy Spirit's never pulling one over the other person's eyes. There's no deception going on. There's always only truth, love, affection, praise, honor, reverence, value, that's what's happening all the time within the Godhead, within this relationship. And outside of that, what happens is from the nature of God, 
God, because he's loving, because he's one, he loves others. This is why God created you. Not so that you could love God back. In other words, oftentimes people have a mistaken notion that the reason why God created the universe, created human beings, is because God was lonely. He needed to be loved. So therefore, God created human beings to love. If this is true, then God created flawed creatures, pretty messed up. God was a colossal failure because he created people that don't love rightly, right? The, the bottom line is this. That's not true. God did not create because he was lonely, therefore he needed love or to be loved. God created because he is loving. He's not lonely. He's looking to extend the circle of his love, and this is what he does. He created human beings to invite into that circle, to invite into oftentimes the way it's defined or described in certain customs as a dance. It's like God is in this dance. When we think about a dance, you think about there needs to be some form of symmetry and, and harmony and unity. You've got to walk in step. There's got to be some form of um, being in sync with each other, all right? And if somebody gets out of step, you step on toes and you hurt other people, you injure people. If someone stops the dance and says, I refuse to dance, well, now you just jar the entire thing. You stop. Everything comes to a screeching halt and it's broken. Well, the idea that God is this unity, this one, this, within him is peace and love and kindness, and that God created us to join that dance with him. What's happened within the universe is that we have, def we have defied God. We've broken the dance. We've stepped out of sync with God. And what God has done, what God is doing, what God did through Jesus was he sent Jesus into this world to restore those who have broken the dance, who have broken the relationship, to invite them back in. This is the picture of what John chapter 17 portrays, that Jesus was on a mission from the Father to bring about restoration. But the first thing I really want to point out is the foundation of love. All love is derived love. That means that the love that comes out of a Shakespearean sonnet or the love that comes out of your heart towards a newborn, towards a child, or towards someone that you love, that's love that's derived. It's mirrored. It comes from. It's reflective love. It's not sourced in you. You may think it is, but it actually comes because you are an image bearer of God. All love comes from God. It's sourced in God. God is the foundation. The second thing we take a look at is the command to love. Here's what we're going to begin to see in verses 30 to 31. Jesus then goes on to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he said, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus basically does is he takes the entirety of the Old Testament, all right, the law, the prophets, um, the poets, all of this. God, uh, Jesus takes all of these things and he basically synthesizes it into two simple commands. Two simple commands. And he basically says this. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And love your neighbor the way that you would love yourself. In other words, the idea that he's really trying to convey basically comes from two Old Testament passages. The first of which is Deuteronomy chapter 6-4. The second of which is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18, uh, it's, it's almost verbatim what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's already said this before. So Jesus isn't really teaching anything new, but he's teaching it in a new light. He's basically giving new meaning to it. In other words, what he's trying to say is that the real essence, the real issue, the real things that are most important is that God gives this command, and the command is to love him and to love others. And we've got two things we've got to deal with. The first of which is the word love. 
we've got to make sure that we're on the same page in terms of definition with regard, with regard to the word love. And I think if I were to take some sort of a survey here right now and pass out a card and be like, hey, define love, we'd have all sorts of different definitions of it. And here's part of the problem. We live in a culture and a society that has completely lost the understanding of what real love is. Here's typically what we do with love. We take love and we sensualize it or we sentimentalize it. Those two things. In other words, we turn it into sex whereby we feel some things, lust, with another definition of it, or we sentimentalize it. We basically just say, oh, I got a warm, fuzzy feeling. I must be in love. And what ends up happening is we have all sorts of things in our culture, in our society that feed that. And if you're not careful with the things that you watch, with the things that you give your mind to, then you are constantly on a steady diet being fed a false perception of what love is. I'll give you an example. All right? Don't have to do, go too far, research too much, but like The Bachelorette, all right? Which is a story of cheap, sentimental, and slash sensual love. Right? So here's my point. All right? If this is how you feed your mind, at one point, at some point, you will begin to think, oh, love is finding a big, hunky dude that has, you know, six-pack, and he's very strong, and he has a red rose in his hand. And one of these days, I may find that guy, and when I find that guy, when he gives me that red rose, when he shows me attention, when he gives me his entire heart, big, hunky, chunky heart, because he's awesome, then I will know what true love is. Problem is, that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It exists on TV because that's where it only exists. doesn't live like that in real life because if you find that guy, you may have him for a few months, maybe even a few years if you're lucky. But at some point, when you start getting crow's feet and your neck starts getting all saggy and you're not really pretty anymore, you put on a few LBs, he will dump you and find somebody else who's better looking than you because it is not real love, it's sentimentality and sensuality. And you will be absolutely crushed and broken. You have had and started from the wrong premise of love. You've not understood what true love is. You've taken this idea of love and you've added your own understanding of it. The picture of love that Jesus describes and portrays here is literally the Greek word that oftentimes most of you, if you have been around Christianity for any amount of time, you're familiar with this word, it's the word agape. Basically what agape is, oftentimes I've heard lots of you know, passages and pastors and people that talk about agape love. They're like, agape is this unique love that only God loves. And the reality is, is that's not really true. That this is a love that, yes, God does love. This is a way in which God loves. But also, it's a way in which God asks us to love back. It's also the same thing which Jesus says, don't love the world. He says, it literally, agape not the world. Don't agape the world. The word agape... Literally, quite literally means, you can see this in a moment, why it is the word that's used to associate God's love. The word agape basically means this. It's a type of devoted or committed type of a love in which somebody chooses to devote value to. That's what agape is. Agape is a type of committal type love. It's a covenantal love that basically says, I'm going to invest my life in you just because of who you are and just because I love I love you. See, oftentimes we think that we have some form of love, but oftentimes the way that we love is we love in order to get love. That's not agape. That's self-centered love. In other words, we're loving, we're giving out something with the hope and anticipation of being able to be given something back. Problem is, one of the ways to identify this, I oftentimes, I kind of have a theory that most people in ministry have or start with this type of love. 
And if they don't shift or change or get rid of that love or detoxify from that false type of love, then ministry itself becomes toxic. Here's what I mean. They get involved in ministry. They're like, I want to serve Jesus. They get involved, serve, and three months go by. No one ever pats them on the back. No one says, hey, great job. You're awesome. Then they start getting all bitter. In reality, what they're doing is they're giving love with the hope and anticipation of being given love back. But agape is a way of giving love with no expectation of being loved back. It's just a devoted type of a love. Another way to describe it, it's a love that a mom has towards a baby. Now, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean it's kind of a funny thing. So sometimes moms are like, you know, especially with newborns, they're like, oh, look at him, he's smiling. Now, you know, there's always like that, like, 50-plus age person that comes by, they're like, oh, he's not smiling, that's just gas. Like, I mean, there's this hope and desire in our hearts, like, we want love back, and we're going to give, but a mom loves with a heart and a desire that says, regardless of who this kid is, it's my kid, and I will love this child. I will change their diapers. I will help them. I'll clean up, spit up, throw up, no matter what they do, because I love this child. No parent at the end of the day is going to look at that action and be like, good job. I'm awesome, and I'm proud of the fact that I cleaned up a very nasty blowout. No parent does that, but what a parent does do is they realize the fact that they have a child that needs to be shown love, and for a parent to just be like, I love my kid, but I never change your diapers. I love my kid, but I never coach him. I never guide him. I never pour into their life. I love my kid, but I'm never there to comfort them, to be a security for them, to be a covering for them. You don't love your kid in the same way that a husband might be like, I love my wife, but you don't ever sit down and try to dig into her heart and ask questions about how she's doing. I love my wife, but you never really demonstrate it. You only love in word, but not in action. You do not love in agape love. This is the love that Jesus says the way the, the world operates. Okay, so we got to look at that first idea of the word love. The second thing we got to try to wrestle with is this notion of command. Because here's what Jesus says, is that this is a command. It's a commandment. To love God with agape, with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, and to love your neighbor, agape, with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. To love them as yourself. To give yourself over to them with the same type of love. The idea of a commandment kind of rubs us the wrong way. Because a lot of times when we think of the word commandment or someone coming up to be like, you know, I'm going to give you some commands. You're like, no, I don't want commands. Like, everything inside of us resists that, right? If you have young kids or even teenagers, you're like, go clean your room. They're like, no. Uh, really? Or why? Or now? Or can I watch a show first? Or there's, there's, there's oftentimes not this, like, this, this sense of joyfulness of like, yay, clean my room. Skipping down the hall, be like, I get to clean my room because dad asked me. It was a command from dad, and I love dad, and I love cleaning my room, and I, all my world is coming together in one vortex of beauty and love. And the reality is, is that we have sort of this notion that commandments to do something kind of rub us the wrong way. We resent that oftentimes. We don't like being told what to do. We feel as if our sovereignty somehow being violated. Do you agree? Whenever someone comes to you, they're like, I want you to do this. I want you to mow the lawn. I want you to take out the trash. I want you to do these tasks. We're like, ah, oh, come on. Like, my sovereignty is being threatened right now, right? We've got to do this now, like later. I mean, I'm king. I don't want to be threatened by it right now. But this idea of commands and love being somehow together troubles us. So when God says, love me, it's a command. With all your heart, 
soul, strength, and mind. This is hard for us to swallow sometimes. So I, I want to give you a different metaphor to think about this. And the metaphor I'm thinking of is marriage. I'm going to show you a picture. I, I actually have a privilege of, of uh, doing a lot of weddings. Um, just out of curiosity, how many of you here right now are, are single? Raise your hand. Really high. Single. Really, really high. Okay. That's, I don't know, 60, 70% of you. Just so that those of you that are married know that you're not alone. Ra- raise your hand if you are married. Raise your hand really high so we can see you. Okay. Good. There's a, there's a lot of you too. Um, hi. Welcome. Um, so I, I want to show you a, 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 a wedding I just recently did. Um, over the past in a year or so, I've kind of gotten in the habit. I have my little iPhone with me. And so usually when the bride and groom aren't expecting or suspecting, I'll, I'll whip out my camera and take a little picture. I, I get the best shot in the house that even my friends that are photographers, we have a lot of photographers here at Calvary Slow, and I never see them get as good a shot as this ever. So like <laughs> I'm calling them to the rug right now. So if you're here, photographer, all right. Um, dare you to get a shot like this. You can't because I'll be standing right there. You'll get it with my head in the way. Um, so I took a shot of this, and, and what you need to know in the context here, this, this picture was literally shot a moments after they made a vow. So he, here's a vow. Um, there are two things that are part of a vow. It's the vow and then the secondary part, which is the I do. So here's what happens traditionally in any type of wedding I've ever done is usually um, they'll make a vow, and the vow will go something like this. You know, I vow to give you my heart, my life, and my soul, and I will keep my eyes fixed on you, and I will pray for you every day, and I will serve you, and I will love you, and I will cherish you, and I won't let my eyes wander upon anybody else, and I will do this in, until I die. All right? And it's just, you know, everyone's crying. like, oh, this is sad. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. You know, every, it's just like this sense of, like, emotion. And then typically it's my job now at that point to kind of intervene. My question is, uh, if it's the girl making that vow, ask the guy, like, um, do you take this woman who has said these vows to you, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And at that point he says, usually with tears, he's choked up, even if he's a manly dude, I've seen the biggest, brawniest, swaggerly list guys with, you know, choke up and start crying. And they're like, I, I do. What he's saying, what he's saying is I, I will give, I will submit myself to your commands. Your wishes will become my commands. I will gladly surrender myself to this. Now, Take a look at their faces, obviously. Um, as you look at these guys, you know, you realize that to them, after making their vows, none of this was a chore to them. The vow exchange, the I do's, the commitments, the agreements, the covenants, the contracts going on before, back and forth between each other, all of this was done out of sheer delight. There is no sense of duty, no sense of like, oh, really? In fact, I've never done a wedding before where I'm at that moment, I'm like, now do you take this woman who's been weeping over you to be your lawfully wedded wife, and he's just like, I think so. <laughs> or, you know what, 60% of me agrees with everything that she, you know, what she said, but not entirely. I mean, there's still 40% of me that's a little bit reserved. i got to chew on this one a little bit. Or I've never heard a guy ever even say, no, not at all. I will never do this. In fact, the overwhelming response every single time is this or something like this. Sheer joy, sheer delight, and what you're seeing is two people give each other to their commands. So this idea of giving ourselves to a command, like Jesus says, isn't that foreign from us. And the reason why these people can joyfully do this is because each of them 
assume they know each other's position, meaning the guy knows or believes that the woman is deeply in love with him and will be committed faithfully to him, and vice versa, the same is true. But the reality is, is this is what allowed them to be able to joyfully give themselves over to these vows, which leads us, you know, kind of into this thing that I want for us to think about. So the next slide I want to show you is just basically something I'd written out this morning, that God tells us that love for him and love for others is the way that your life, your heart, was designed to flourish and live. That's what the Bible tells us. In short, this is how God designed all things. In other words, the Bible's assessment or assumption upon all things is that God is creator. He's a God. Because he's God, he creates all things. And therefore, because he's God, he knows how things work. He knows how things were created to work. And here's the thing. If you violate that, you violate the order of all things, and therefore you enter into some form of brokenness or destruction. All right? So take a look at the next slide. I was thinking about this in terms of just how this can work out on a practical level. Now think about Henry Ford, who I think, you know, had something to do, obviously, with the, you know, combustible engines and all that. So Henry Ford creates this car with a combustible engine that needs and requires gasoline to function. In other words, using highly combustible gasoline in the engine actually liberates that car to be what it was intended to be, to get you where you want to go, to enjoy life inside a car going extreme distances. Now, let's say some of you are like, gosh, gas, so expensive, it's ridiculous, 450 a gallon, something's really wrong, I'm sick and tired of having to pay this, I don't like the way this is working out, I want to liberate my car from gas, and so therefore, I mean, you know, again, obviously there's lots of options and ways in which you can liberate your car from gas, you can go electric and so other ways, but if you don't do that, if you don't figure out some way or find some guy who knows how to do electrical engineering and all these types of things to come out, change, rewire your car, and you just simply take a combustible engine, you're like, I'm going to liberate it. I'm going to buy a 99-cent gallon of water, pour it into the tank, and I'm going to liberate it. You won't liberate the car. You'll destroy the car. You're not bringing greater freedom to the life of that car. You're bringing its death and destruction. Like a child sitting down looking at a, you know, a, a fish in a tank and just thinking, like, ah, oh, it's so sad. Like, I get to sit out here and watch Barney and the fish. Poor fish is in that tank, and it's this big, and... What if the child is like, you know, I'm going to liberate that fish from the tank. Takes it out, puts it on the couch next to him, says, you can watch Barney with me. The child has not liberated the fish. It's doomed it to its death and destruction. When you and I take our hearts that were designed by God to love him with all of our hearts, our might, our soul, our strength, and to love others as we love ourselves, and we say, I won't love God. I'll honor myself. You aren't liberated. You're in bondage. You're not free. You're on a path of destruction. You're not finding more life. You're on a path to death. And this leads us really to the problem. The problem. And the problem that we have is kind of twofold. And I see it like this. The first problem is the problem, what I describe, is, is of what we love. The problem of what we love. The problem is, is not that we love less. The problem is that we love the wrong things. In other words, we're devoted to the wrong things. We value the wrong things. We talk about this a lot here at this church. The Bible's description of this is idolatry. We really, by nature, have hearts that will always worship, always find something to value and worship. We will always find some sort of higher principle, higher life, 
greater thing above us, beyond us, in which we will devote ourselves to, will devote our money generously, gladly, joyfully to. And, and I've thought about this before sometimes. One of the reasons I think sometimes people get freaked out whenever, you know, churches, whatever, talk about money is, yeah, there's been a lot of abuse and whatnot, but sometimes it boils down to this, is that people think, I don't want to give my money to something I don't really value. But you'll gladly give your money away to something you value. If football is what you value, you'll joyfully buy $150 front row tickets. If certain music is what your style is, if that's what you value, you will joyfully, gladly go on Amazon and spend hundreds of dollars on paraphernalia because you joyfully love that thing. So the issue is, it's not that we don't devote ourselves or don't love things, it's that we love the wrong things. And by loving the wrong things, it turns us into something other than what God created us to be, which is to be image bearers of God. I'll give you an example of how Martin Luther, the great reformer, described this. He said the first and the summary of all the Ten Commandments can be boiled down to this. All of our problems are always worship problems. The reason why I covet, the reason why I lust, the reason why I may want to murder somebody or steal from somebody or take from somebody is because first and foremost, it's a worship issue. I've worshipped the wrong thing, Therefore, I've acted out in the wrong ways. Most of our sins, if it's lust, if it's abuse of power, if it's covetousness, I mean, if you are like sickly in debt, you know, in terms of money or maybe even obese in terms of weight because you love food or because you love money, because you love things, because you are totally invested in these things, most of the issues have to do with misplaced love, affections that we have and devotions to the wrong things. And by doing this, it totally rearranges and destroys every other part of our life. So rather than loving people and giving ourselves over to other people, we use people. We misuse people. We don't joyfully serve people. And the only way to deal with relationships on a horizontal level is to deal with the relationship on a vertical level. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love others as we love ourselves. And there's a priority by which Jesus describes this. So the problem, first of all, is with what we love, the second problem that I see, as I describe it here, is the problem of distrust and fear. And really this boils down to this, is that we know that something's not right in our heart. We know that something's not right in the universe. We know that something's not right in our county, in our district, in our nation, right? We know that something's not right in the world. It's one of the reasons why we vote, why we sign our names to causes, why we even give any amount of time to people standing in front of Trader Joe's talking about Greenpeace is because we're like, oh, I care. I care about dolphins. I want to help them. Or I care about the economy. Or I care about the world in which we live in because something's not right. So we want to cast our vote. We want to give our affection, give our time, give our attention, give our money to causes and things like that. And these are our attempts and our ways to somehow make things right because we know deep down something's not right. So here's the problem. Really, at the end of the day, we have a sense of distrust. We don't trust a lot of people. We've been burnt. It's one of the reasons why sometimes if you've been in a relationship uh, and the relationship let you down, maybe you were married and you ended up in divorce, maybe you had a boyfriend or girlfriend and they abused their power over you, maybe it was a situation where someone who was an authority figure in your life, it could have been an uncle, a parent, a dad, a pastor, someone in your life that took advantage of you, it could have been physically, sexually, uh, some form that you've been taken advantage of, you've been sinned against, and what's happened is it's created in your heart a sense of distrust. Where be now you don't trust people, and what happens is the only way for love to flow naturally is by there to be trust. 
if trust is violated, if trust is ever broken, then that hose gets clamped down upon. It gets crimped. It gets broken. And so rather than being a means by which to dispel life and give joy and give love and grace and kindness to other people, that literally you become sort of blocked up. You are not able to give love because you can't trust. And what ends up happening is this whole order which Jesus says, here's the way the universe works. Here's the way your heart works. Here's the way that your life is liberated. Here's the way that you find the deepest level of, of joy in your life is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, and love others as you would love yourself. And for us to not live like that means that we're not living in sync with the way that our God and Creator designed us. And therefore, we're not liberated. We're bound. We're broken. We're not free. And oftentimes, it's because we have issues in our heart where we don't feel like we can trust God. We don't trust Him. This is the issue. This is one of the reasons why, for example, in the New Testament, Paul says, by faith, we're saved. By grace, through faith, we're saved. Faith is literally trust. It's the exact same Greek word. That's how we're saved. That's how God thaws out our hardened hearts. That's how God takes away our cynicism. That's how God changes us, is we trust him. In order to trust him, we need to first of all see that he is trustworthy. But this is the problem. We fear and we distrust God. And this leads ultimately to the last point, which is really this issue of the hope of love. How can we find hope within this love? Where do we go from here? Because at, really at the end of the day, here's the way that typically I've heard this passage taught, and maybe you have heard pastors teach this oftentimes. You can hear a passage like this be taught by a pastor or a leader, and they're like, look, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and I. How many of you guys are doing that? Most of you raise your hand. Uh, some of you don't raise your hand. Some of you are like, ah, I'm not really doing too good job. Some of other, others of you are like, I'm up every morning at 4 o'clock, and I read, and I journal, I pray. I'm really doing a great job at it. And other people raise their hand like, I'm not doing a really good job. And those people that are doing a good job look at other people. They're like, I can't believe you don't read your Bible as much as you should. And no quiet time. What type of a horrible Christian are you? And so what typically happens is pastors stop right here. So either you walk away from pastors like this thinking like, dang, I'm not loving God the way that I should. I'm a really, really bad, miserable Christian. Or you walk away and you're like, man, I'm awesome. I'm doing so good. And I get to criticize and judge everybody who's not up to my standard. So it either leads to extreme arrogance or total despair. And the issue is of the heart. So where's hope? Where do we find it? And what Jesus does in this dialogue with this guy, he ends his conversation, and the guy basically says, Jesus, what an amazing answer. Good job. Um, what you're saying even is better than, you know, sacrifices and blood offerings and all these other types of things. Great job. And Jesus says, you know what? You're not too far from the kingdom because you answered rightly. Kind of studying this, you know, I wonder, like, why, why didn't Jesus say, you know, let me, let me tell you about what's going to happen. I mean, Jesus could have been like, I'm going to die. I'm going to go on the cross. Jesus could have said, look, let, let me tell you what's about to take place over the next few days. Next 36 hours. Next 48 hours. Let me tell you what's going to happen. But he doesn't. Why doesn't Jesus tell this guy who's this close to the kingdom what he's about to do? It's as if Jesus instead says, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to show you. You want to know what love is? You want to see what true love is? You want to know what it looks like to truly love with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, with all of your energy, with all that you are? Jesus says, I will demonstrate it to you. 
And Mark takes us in the narrative. At the end of the book, what we see is Jesus on the cross being handed over, condemned to die, tortured, and then ultimately dies, rises again from the dead. And what ends up happening is throughout the New Testament is everything else in the rest of the New Testament is commentary on that event. So here's the way this oftentimes goes down. We look at our lives and we say, I need to work harder. I need to be a better Christian. I need to love more. I need to do more. I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to do all these things more. But what that amounts to is a whole lot of great motivation that will ultimately end up in either total despair or total arrogance. And what we don't need is any more of that. We need people liberated from self-righteousness, and we need people liberated from total despair. And the only way to find ourselves liberated from that is to see what Jesus does on the cross for you. Because on the cross, what you see is your God not talking about love, but demonstrating the depth of love in which he's calling for us to give back. Remember the picture of the altar? Husband and wife, the joy. What you see are two people joyfully making vows to each other, joyfully submitting themselves to each other because they are both convinced of the intentions of each other. What you see on the cross, if your heart is skeptical, if you find yourself in any form of disbelief, if you look at God and you think, I don't know if I can trust him. How can I trust God? How can I give God my heart? How can I give God my sin? How can I give God my life? How can I trust God with everything that I am? My heart, my soul, my life, my mind, my intellect, everything. And the answer that Mark keeps repeating to us and the rest of the New Testament keeps shouting back to us is because God loves you with all of his heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. To the point that God says, I withheld nothing for you. You deserve death. You deserve judgment. You broke the dance. You removed yourself from the circle. You've set up your own sovereign kingdom in which you are king. You have violated my kingdom. You violated my law. But God says, I've come. I've sent my son Jesus not to bring judgment upon you, but to bear the judgment you and I deserve. This is how much I love you. To the degree that you see that, you are loved. That will reorder everything in your heart. It will allow you to be free to weep tears of joy because you know that this God loves you, not because of what you've done, but in spite of what you've done. Not because of how good you perform, but because of what Jesus performed for you. To the degree that you see that, your heart will be changed. To the degree that you believe that, you will then not only know and melt under the fact that you are loved, but then you will have love to give, genuine love to give to others. Not love that's selfish love, not love that's jury-rigged, not love that's somehow manipulative, but love that says, I can love you because I've been loved by God. To the degree that you see that, you'll be changed. We're going to sing, we're going to worship, we're going to finish with a few songs of just waiting on God singing to him. And if you're here and there are things going on in your life you need prayer for, maybe your heart has been hardened, maybe there's cynicism in your heart and you sense God melting that away. We want to pray for you. 
We'll have people up here on the side to pray for you. If there's areas in your life where you find yourself just in bondage, maybe it's to various types of sins. Maybe you're sick and you need healing. Maybe there's a fear of sickness and you're just totally controlled by this and you want freedom. We want to pray for you. We can't guarantee your freedom in this moment, but we can guarantee we'll pray for you and we'll love you. We'll have some people up here, like I said, to pray. I want to finish with this final thought because when Moses, anticipating the fact that after giving these commandments, 613 of them to the people of Israel, what he anticipates is that he's going to be asked by many people this question. And the question in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, he's going to anticipate, he says that sons are going to ask, what is the meaning of the rules that the Lord our God has commanded us? And here's what Moses doesn't say. Moses doesn't come on the scene. Well, the reason why you've got to obey all these commands of God is because God's God. You're not. God's creator. You're creature. God is awesome. You're just the loser that needs to abide by this powerful being. Otherwise, he'll just zap you. That's not at all what Moses says. What Moses says, the reason why we obey the commands of God is because there is a time in your history when your forefathers were slaves They were lost in darkness. They had no way out. They were under the oppression of Pharaoh. And God, out of great love and compassion, delivered them. That storyline has found its ultimate fulfillment and climax in Jesus. You may ask the question today, how do I know? Why should I love God back? Why should I give him my heart? And the answer would be a love that gives everything to you. Why would you withhold anything from it? He won't crush you. He was crushed for you. He won't judge you. Jesus was judged for you. He won't exploit any of your defilement, but rather he will bear your defilement for you. A love that is this big, this great, this unbelievable, has the power to change your heart, change your life, and set you free and liberate you to enter into the life and the joy that God desires for you to have in this life. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. Like I said, if you want to be prayed for, there's be people up there to pray for. You can partake of communion. We have some carpets in the front right here. If you want to just get on your face before Jesus, on your knees and worship him, that's awesome. You're welcome to do that. Just give yourself over. Step forth into the life that God has for you. He loves you. God, right now, we thank you for grace. We thank you for Jesus. We want to give to you, God, now our heart, give to you our all, our worship.